Welcome back to the Weekly Pass. I'm Bonnie Jill Laugh alongside my co-host Adam Copeland. We've got some great stuff coming. We've got Kurt Schilling with us. Thank you for joining the Weekly Pass. And Kurt, I mean, come on, where do I start? 20-year big league career, six-time All-Star, three-time World Series champion with the Diamondbacks and Red Sox, World Series MVP, 3,000 strikeout club, and the highest strikeout-to-walk ratio of any of its members. I mean, how much more can I go on, Kurt? Thanks for joining well, us. <laughs> first of all, let me apologize. You and I have been playing phone tag for a couple months, uh, and I should have done this interview far sooner. So I apologize for that. And secondly, listen, I'm a conservative American, and uh, I'm in no way sexist. But I got to tell you, when I growing up in the big leagues, and 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 you know, at, at the advent of women coming in the clubhouse, I'm I'm always impressed by women in sports now who you can tell know what they're doing and are confident and comfortable at what they're doing and know their subject matter. And I've always been impressed with what you've done. Oh, thanks, Kurt. I appreciate it. And we're happy to, we're so happy to have you on. And don't worry about that. I know you're busy. You got a lot going on, but I want to get right into it. I mean, you being an old school mentality pitcher, analytics and pitchers being yanked early. I mean, what are your thoughts and how you would have handled it? Because no way if you're pitching right now, Kurt, (laughs) you would have 216 wins and 83 complete games. Well, so first off, back in 1995, I started using analytics. Um, I was I was into swing percentages. I was into first pitch swing. Per- I was into all of the analytic data uh, well before it was a movement in the big leagues because I understood. Well, I didn't understand. I, I watched Greg Maddox, and I watched all these guys do it, and I wanted to figure out how to do it better than I was doing it. And I realized that. Uh, you know, batting average and RBIs and home runs were absolutely meaningless statistics when it came to pitching. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of combined the two. Um, and, well, it worked decently well for me. Um, and then, you know, you had the sabermetrics movement come on and you had, you know, the Harvard, the MIT, and the Yale guys going into the front office with no baseball experience. And the old school, new school, they hated each other. And I think they've kind of started to find common ground. Um, there, there's, I think there's a happy medium, Bonnie, when, when – when you're trying to do both. Uh, I, I think there's still some gut to it when you're managing uh, and when you're coaching. But here's the problem with the pitching. You mentioned, you know, complete games and all the things that go with that. I, I would love to tell you that the pitchers are little wusses and that they are not tough and strong and they can't do this. But the problem is these clubs are investing so much money in these pitchers that they're not allowing them to stretch it out. I had, a hundred, I had 190 innings in the minor leagues twice before I got to the big leagues. These guys aren't hitting 190 innings in the big leagues. And so, you know, you, you put a guy on a 100-pitch count, and he throws five innings for three years in the minor league. You can't suddenly bring him up in the big leagues and expect him to throw seven innings and 130 pitches. And mm-hmm. now the one thing I've always said about young pitching, don't ever let a young pitcher try and do something for the first time in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up uh, swing percentage, Kurt, because uh, that's something I want to get into with you. And it's more about an approach at pitching, how you would go after a hitter uh, who, like, you look at guys today and they're always looking for the the three true outcomes, right? It's It's a strikeout, it's a home run, or it's a walk, really, is the way at bats are going nowadays. So when you knew you were facing a guy who had a good eye, like a, a good hitter's eye, who would not swing like at Tony stuff. Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn, exactly. <laughs> yeah. How would you approach in a bat for Tony Gwynn, a guy who they would say did not have a two-strike hole? Well, so, so actually, Tony Gwynn was so good, he was easy. Um, once I started, once I stopped trying to make Tony Gwynn swing and miss, I started to get more successful. So what I, I starting in about 96 or 97, when Terry became my manager, uh, I managed my defense. And so what I would do against Tony was, I, I knew I wasn't going to make him swing and miss. So 
uh, I would play to the park. I would pitch Tony Hardaway. I would move my second baseman over to the shortstop side, move my shortstop into the hole, bring my left fielder in, and bring my center fielder into left center, and throw fastballs away and let him hit line drives at people. And, and, you know, set up the defense in that sense in that way. But when you have a guy that doesn't swing so, – so I think I ended up being a 74% first pitch strike guy in my career. And I always kind of chuckled at the people that would come up and take a strike from me. Like, I'm throwing you a fastball away. You know I'm going to throw you a fastball away. And, 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 and why don't you just take the single to right? But no one would do that, and I knew that. And, and if you look at today's game, I mean – this is a, this is a, it's, I want to be on ESPN or nothing. And, and so you've got that home run mentality, which is, uh, I got to tell you, Randy Johnson might strike out 500 these days. Uh, I think I could get close to 400 um, because I could, I, I, we had data and I had data and I had video. I could, I knew where your holes were. And, and so I would pitch to them. I could hit those. I, I eight or nine out times out of 10, I could hit the holes that you had. And so if you're going to go for the downs, every swing, you're not going to get on base against guys like me because I'm not going to throw you pitches that you're going to be able to square up. And, and, you know, that's bad contact or that's a swing and a miss. And, you know, I understand it because, you know, you look at, I heard a hitter the other day for the first time in my life, I heard a hitter say, talking about, you know, you, you got to be concerned about your OPS, which I thought was kind of funny, but you know, these guys get it now. It's all about driving the ball and driving in runs. And, but they don't have a, they don't have a, 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 a two strike approach. They're not trying to hit a ball. Like, I always knew, like Craig Biggio and Derek Jeter, I always knew when they were up if there was a runner on first, I wouldn't throw them fastballs away because I knew they were trying to hit the ball in the hole. Yeah, they'll choke up. I don't see anybody like that anymore. Yeah, very seldom. I think Ramon Laureano on the A's oftentimes will choke up with two strikes, but it doesn't happen frequently. I I, I seem to remember, and I, I could be wrong on this, did you used to take notes in the dugout following innings? Oh, yeah. Oh, can can yes, you talk about that? Right. Bonnie, Jill, and I were talking about this yesterday, and I was like, man, I feel like I remember him and Barry Bonds to end an inning, kind of walking off and barking and then getting in the dugout and taking notes about that. what the bat was. Can you we tell need, us we about We need to see a book, Kurt. Yeah, can you tell us about that process? Yeah, well, I actually, actually uh, I was, uh, Facebook, I'm actually Facebook living this interview right now, so the world is, is – well, not the world. But people are hearing you. Uh, but um, I have my notebooks. And the other – a couple months ago, on, on, uh, I did a, a Facebook Live, and I kind of brought out a notebook. And I was reading through one of my scouting reports. Um, and basically what I did was I had, I have probably 20 or 30 notebooks um, from my career. And every year I would start a new one. Um, and I would just bring the notes from the previous year forward. Uh, and I would keep notes per at bat because a lot of times, well, and, and Bonds was a great example. So I tried to, Bonds hit more home runs off me. He had nine home runs off me in his career. And uh one of them was a, was a, was one that, that hurt, but the other ones were, were not as big a deal. But the fact of the matter was I found out that Barry would – and I couldn't, couldn't understand. He wouldn't swing at my split. And I was talking to him one day, and he actually was – I don't want to say dumb enough, but he said to me, oh, I can see your split out of your hand. So I, I'm not – every time you throw the split – and I, I could never figure out how he could take – and I threw him some phenomenal splits. And I realized that I was wasting my time by throwing him other stuff. So I really, again, he was so good, he became easy to pitch to. I threw him hard in and nothing else. He hated the strikeout more than anything. So I knew I could get his, his ego, and I could command the ball inside part of the plate. So when I was throwing the ball 95 to 99, I was just fastball in, fastball in, and just kept throwing it there. And, and as he got bigger, he, and much like Tony, 
walking them wasn't a big deal because neither one of their games involved running later in their careers. And so I, I didn't really worry about stuff like that. But, but I mean, there were, you know, and, and the notes didn't always help. Like, the, Todd Helton was the hardest hitter I've ever had to get out. I could, he owned me, and, and I didn't like facing him ever. Um, and it didn't matter, it felt like to me, what I did or what notes I kept or how he just, I just had, he just made good contact off me. Now, Kurt, you mentioned Tony Gwynn, and you also mentioned Barry Bonds. Were those two your your hardest outs of your career? No, 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 no. Who would it be? Neither one of them. No, um, Helton left-handed by far, uh, and right-handed Derek Lee uh, was just a nightmare for me. I don't know why. Uh, and I always, early in my career, I had a lot of trouble with, with short guys. And it wasn't because I was, a, a, you know, a, 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 you know I, I wasn't afraid of small people, but they owned me. And it was because I realized as I got on, the one thing that all short hitters in the big leagues can do is hit a high fastball. If you can't hit a high fastball, you don't get to the big leagues as a short player. Mark Lemke, Marquis Grissom, uh, you name it, little guys. Because uh-huh. I used to throw the ball hard, uh-huh. and uh-huh. my fastball was always up in the strike zone to a smaller guy, and they always hit me well. Once I started realizing that I needed to mix in breaking balls, a lot more breaking balls to, short, to smaller players, I started to get them out much more consistently. So tell me what you were writing down in the notebook. You were getting back and you were saying first pitch fastball, outside corner for a strike. Or you were saying no, swing no, and miss. What, or... I, what I would do is I, I, my game plan, I would write out my game plan Okay. Um, be- before the game uh, from in my notebook. I would write, and then I would go over with my catcher and with one of my defenders, usually my second baseman, because in Boston it was Dustin Bedroya. Mm-hmm. I would have my second baseman managing my defense. So if, for instance, I wanted to shade Johnny into left center with, uh, you know, take away that, that gap in the monster, I would look at Dustin and, and, and move my head left, and he would move Johnny for me. Um, but I would go over the game plan, and then during the game, things would happen on the fly that I didn't want to forget. Um, and I also had a book on umpires, too. So <laughs> if, if, if an umpire was doing something uh, unconventional, then I would note it. If, if an umpire was going against his norm, I would note it. If, you know, um, and, and you know, my biggest day in spring training usually was the day the umpire schedule came out because – much like the game schedule, I knew who my home plate umpires were going to be for every start of the season. And in the National League, I would, I would study them in the sense that I would want to know, you know, where they grew up, where they went to school, what they like, what they dislike. Because in the National League, when you hit, as a pitcher, you have a chance to, to shoot the breeze with the umpire. And for, for umpires, I didn't know. I wanted to get a feel for their limits. I wanted to get a feel for, you know, some of these guys were absolute dorks. And idiots, and there's nothing. There was nothing you could change that would make them any better. So I would just, you know, I would I would have my fun with them. Other guys, some days you could you could uh, uh, you could walk them into your game, like you know, hey, listen, you know, I, I I'm going to keep pounding that outside corner. You can't keep calling that a ball because it's not a ball. But I'm going to if I if I don't get that pitch, and it was you know, I I would argue for strike. Now there are umpires that would call ball strikes. I never got mad at them. I'll take anything I can get, but. I wanted to know because, I, you know, if I go 3-2 on a hitter and I try and throw a fastball in to, to freeze a hitter and I'm facing and there's an umpire behind the plate who doesn't call the inside corner of, uh, of the plate, that's my fault in I, my mind because ultimately it was this. I guess I would tell you this. I realized early in my career that I wasn't being paid to pitch. I was being paid to win. And that's a very different mindset in my mind. Now, Kurt, you talk about your journal. I'm assuming in the journal you talk about the Bloody Sock game, and we all want to know about that. Can you kind of walk <laughs> us through that game? And how painful was it? I mean, to, I mean, to us watching it, look, it was painful, or it wasn't, you know, as bad as the media kind of blew it up to be? 
Well, I I, uh, I certainly didn't keep notes on the bloody stocking just because I, it, I mean, I was you know it was bleeding. That was the end of the journal entry. Um, the the pain was minimized uh, because you know as you well know when you play professional sports, uh, professional sports teams are very uh, carefree with medicine, and uh, so when you play, they'll get, you know I don't know if you ever saw the movie North Dallas Forty. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, right, that's true. That's real. That's how it works. You need to get shot. Here's a shot. You need pills. Here's pills. And uh, you know, I was never a, a, a you know a big pill guy or anything like that. But I had my they've numbed my leg up, and mm-hmm. so the only thing I could actually feel was the blood. At the I, you ever had a wet sock and you put a shoe on? Yes, it's the yeah. best. <laughs> yeah, Feels it, real good. It, it, it is the grossest feeling. Yes. I can only I could feel the inside half of my right foot was like I was coming. I got out of the pool because the blood was pooling at the bottom of my shoe. And I could feel it squishing around. But other than that, you know, the tendon wasn't dis- dislocating uh, after the surgery. So I wasn't feeling that pain because it wasn't happening. But, you know, that was a night I tell people, and I talk to a lot of people about this. I, 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 I'm a Christian. Uh, I've, my faith is, is incredibly strong. And that was one of the experiences I had in my life where I experienced some, some, some uh, divine uh, things. You know, I, I tell people, listen, I wasn't praying to win or praying for God to give me the edge. I just wanted to be able to compete that night. If you remember game one, I got my butt kicked. And, and you know, I, I, I said, I can't think of anything better than making 55,000 people from New York shut up. And I did the exact opposite in game one. Uh, and they, they had every right to, to, to get me off the field and yelling at me and all that stuff. But game six was a chance. And, mm-hmm. and I was praying. And my prayer was just let me compete tonight. Let me go up and, and compete against these guys. And I'll take the chips falling where they may. And yeah, and you threw seven amazing innings, too. Well, I knew – here's the thing. I knew when I when I stepped out of the dugout to go to the bullpen to warm up, when I did it for game one, my tendon was dislocating. So it literally was snapping over the bone. When I stepped out of the dugout for game one, my tendon dislocated. When I stepped out for game six, it didn't. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, uh, I'm fine. I'm, I got I to manage tonight, but I'm, I'm going to be able to do this. So – you know, I had that. That I, I got to tell you, people ask me about the nerves in that game. I, I, I promise you, hand to God, I was probably the calmest guy on the planet, just because I knew I was going to be allowed to do what I did for a living, and I was going to be able to compete. And it was October, and in my mind, when I, the, the calendar turns to October, you might have been better than me in August, but nobody could beat me in October. Well, you became the hero in Boston for that gutsy performance and helped the Red Sox toward their first World Series win since 1918. Well, uh, Keith Polk, Derek Lowe, Pedro Martinez, there was a lot. That was an amazing team. That was an incredibly talented team, too. But, you know, you look at things like the things that I look back and remember, I remember Keith Polk having what I thought was the greatest postseason ever for a reliever. Um, and then I remember one of my favorite memories ever was uh, Derek Lowe, who was out of the – I don't know if you remember this, but Derek Lowe was taken out of the rotation for the postseason – and, you know, he had, he had struggled. He had won 15 games, but he had about a five-something ERA. And we were out in batting practice before the Angels series, and he was just incredibly down. And I was talking to him. I said, listen, this is, this is you got to understand something. At some point in this series or at some point in this postseason, we're going to ask you to make something happen that's going to help us. You're going to make a difference. He ended up winning all three clinching games. And if you remember, game seven, he went like seven scoreless. I mean, it was those are the things I remember. I remember Manny being unconscious. I remember David really stepping onto the stage as the clutch hitter he came to be. I remember Billy Miller uh, off Rivera. I remember the little things. Orlando Cabrera, you know that that 
that's what made that team so amazing. It's incredible the names you're saying. Yeah. I bringing back memories. The, bring back the, memories. The O dog at second base, Orlando Cabrera. Yeah. Um, in talking about pitch or uh, umpires and strike zones. I feel like with with catchers and with pitchers, you feel this more because you're talking about the human element of the game. Now, K-Zone came about when you were pitching, right? And I felt like you had a, a distaste for, for K-Zone, which is now almost the robo-umpire. Yeah, the Quest Tech, yeah, I I, I got fined $25,000 for uh, physically abusing a camera. So, yeah. Okay, I, I didn't didn't mean to get into the, the finding of the Quest Tech, but uh, that stuff I feel like is important to the game of baseball, the human element where you can finagle an umpire a little bit. Talk about how I'm going to hit the outside black, and he can say that's my strike zone, or it's not. Where do you come down on this robo-umpire well, situation? So, let me just quickly tell you, the reason I broke the camera was, was the umpire. The umpire that day behind the plate, um, I was it, it was another thing, like I said, I was sitting there and the catcher went out to visit, and I was looking at, I was talking to the umpire, and I said, listen, Teddy, you, you know, that, that pitch out, that's a strike. And he looked at me and said, the, the machine won't let me call that. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, the machine doesn't want me to call that pitch a strike. I said, okay, I'll, I'll fix that. <laughs> and, and I walked over and smashed the Quest Tech machine that was in the on-deck circle. And it was funny because all four umpires sent me a letter after the game like, you know, that was the greatest thing we've ever seen. Thank you. Because they hated it. They hated the system. And one thing, so, so it, it's really changed. The dynamics of the game have changed in that sense, in, in that you can't I, – I used to have an umpire when I started. Uh, I would work – I would throw mostly almost all fastballs uh, in the first inning, but I would, I would want to find my perimeter. I would, I would move – I would almost literally walk the umpire from the middle outside part of the plate to the corner and off the corner in little three, four, five, six-inch increments to figure out where his boundary was. Nowadays, you kind of have an idea of where it's going to be. But here's one thing that a lot of people don't know. You, you know they give those guys scores, right? I mean, after each game, they get a score. Yeah. For, the umpire score, yeah. yeah. Right. So, so think about being quizzed, and your, your test score revolves around your answers. You, you, answer, you, you, you answer 100 questions, and the 10 hardest ones you don't get credit for, bad or good. Because the umpires, on the two inches of each corner of the plate, they don't get graded on those. Those pitches are basically ambiguous. They can call them whatever they want to call them. They don't get judged right or wrong on the corners. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I live on the corner. I have to pitch it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I had to have the guys like Eddie Rapuano and Teddy Barrett and, and you know, the, the umpires that were consistent that would call the ball. The, because I, what I would do is I would show an umpire, and I heard from umpires. They said, listen, I love I love calling your games. They're fast. I worked fast, and I threw strikes. But I would, I, I would start out like, like I said. I would start out getting a feel for for my strike zone. And and as my career went on, it wasn't about getting a feel. It was about getting out because the strike zone wasn't going to move. I want to talk to you about another moment in your career. I like talking about the pitching element, but 9-11 was a major part of of Major League Baseball, and you were on the Arizona Diamondbacks. You end up facing the New York Yankees. You get George Bush throws out the ceremonial first pitch. Can you just briefly talk about that experience and what the the baseball element tied into that patriotic moment in America meant? There's not enough time to talk. That was was one of my, you know, if I have memories of my career that would last forever, that would be one of them. Being, I got to tell you, um, two things that were actually really, really um, powerful. Number one, we got to go to Ground Zero, the, the off day in New York, and we went into the command center there, and I, I just—it was surreal. It was, it was beyond. So they had a map, a topographic map, and I would tell you it was 20 feet high by 30 feet wide, 
and it was basically every square foot of the disaster zone. And there were yellow, red, and blue pins. The yellow pins were civilians they had pulled out. The red pins were firefighters, and the blue pins were police officers. And this map was dotted with, with pins. And, you know, they, they asked somebody to stand up and speak, and I ended up talking to these people. And it was an amazing, amazing, uh, very moving experience for me. But while we were there, they pulled a firefighter out of the wreckage. And every time they pulled the first responder out, they did the ceremony. And it was just, it was, it was unbelievable. It was gut-wrenching to watch. And, you know, they talk about the 9-11 responders and how sick everybody got and, and the, the, you know, the high instances of cancer and all that other stuff. Um, I, Three-quarters of our team after the World Series fell violently ill for about a week and a half. And I was one of them. I literally was incapacitated for 10 days after that, which was one of the scariest things wow. that's ever happened to me. But, uh, but you know what? In hindsight, it, it, from a Diamondback perspective, the World Series went exactly as it was supposed to go. We won in Arizona. We played three amazing games in New York that really energized that city. And then we came back and won in Arizona. So it all worked out. Uh, one of the greatest World Series ever. And it ends in, in I mean, you must have spent time talking yeah. to Luis Gonzalez about how it ended. That's how any kid has ever drawn up the end of a World Series. Well, you want to hear something freaky. At the beginning of the year, the last day of spring training, Jerry Colangelo said, you know what's going to happen. We're going to play the Yankees in the World Series, and Gonzalo's going to come up with the base load in the bottom of the ninth and hit a grand slam. Now, Kurt- Gonzo, came up, and- Gonzo okay, came up in the bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded. He didn't hit the slam, yeah. though. <laughs> only, yeah. only, only a number off the cutter up the middle to win the World Series. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't, yeah that was, but that was a grand slam for all intents and purposes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, Kurt, I don't know if you saw recently that Justin Verlander was pretty vocal about the juice balls right now and, you know, balls flying yeah. out of the parks. I mean, even in the AAA, they broke the record for how many dingers are, you know, flying out. What are your takeaways yeah. from that? I'm with Justin. They're effing yeah. juicing the balls. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious. And it's, it's, listen, for them to deny it is kind of sad because you have to understand something. The only thing, well, I didn't have anything in my hand during my career more than I had a baseball. I knew every – I could tell if a ball was one thirty-sixth of an inch fatter, one thirty-sixth of an inch skinnier. I could tell if the, the seam was, you know, one, eight, one sixty-fourth of an inch higher or lower. Uh, I, and I knew when the balls were hard and, and when they were soft. And it was – I mean, it, it was a no-brainer. And I could – every time I pitched, I knew. Could, I you, mean, tell, I had, could you tell the difference, Kurt, between the balls in Colorado and then Arizona? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and but see, I I was out before they started doing that for the most part. They started when they humid started doing the humidor and stuff in there, in Colorado, and and let me tell you, the problem with Colorado has never been travel the ball traveling a long distance longer than it does. That's never ever going to be the issue in Colorado. The problem in Colorado is that think about it like this: if you go from having to cover an outfield inside of a phone booth and then you do it in the middle of a ten thousand acre farm. <laughs> And that's the thing. Look at the outfield in Colorado. Look how big it is. It's enormous. Mm-hmm. It's you know, and that's the problem because every single time there's a runner on, even if he's on first, he's in scoring position. You have to pitch differently, and so ground balls through the infield are always two bases, always. And and, and you know, so it, from a defensive perspective, you have to have three guys that can absolutely fly in the outfield to cover that ground. And and it's you know, I always I always argue. That there, anytime you make your home park very different than than another park, you put your team at a horrible disadvantage. Or when you play a different schedule, that's why the Cubs didn't win forever. 
the Cubs didn't win forever, not because they didn't have the talent, but because they played a different schedule than every all other 2019. And once that started changing, you saw what happened. You got teams flying in from Houston the night before playing a day game in, in Chicago on a Friday. It's a, it's a totally but different that, schedule. But that, was, but, but that was the Cubs' advantage. Their disadvantage was that they played day games every day at home, and in the road, they never played day games. <laughs> your your, cl- your so, internal clock messes yeah, you up, right? right? But think about it. We come from spring training where we play 1 o'clock games every afternoon, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Which is completely the opposite of the regular season. They're the only team that doesn't change the schedule from spring training, but everybody else does. So by August, they're, they're dragging butt because they've been playing in the hot every day in the heat, and everybody else has been playing night games. It was a huge disadvantage. Uh, can you talk to us about what, what the difference was when you made the switch from, from starting to closing? Because you closed at the, near the end of your career, right, with Boston? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I sucked at it. Did you, did you not enjoy it? Uh, no, I loved it. I just wasn't very good at it. <laughs> okay, what, what, was, what was the difference in approach? Because as a, as a starter, I imagine you're, you're setting up at bats. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, 22 saves, Kurt. Yeah, I know, but I still suck. From the bullpen, you can't be a three-pitch pitcher. You, you, you can't. You don't have enough time. Right, you have to right. get three outs or two outs or four outs. And you get them however you So you basically become a two-pitch pitcher. Me, I was a, I was a three-pitch pitcher in the sense that my split, if you think about this, I threw 3,000 and some innings. And I threw probably 10,000 split-fingered fastballs. I never threw a split-fingered fastball for a strike or tried to. Right? So right, every right. single time I threw a split, I was trying to throw a ball in a count that I knew the hitter was going to swing. In the, when you get into the eighth and ninth inning, those mentalities change. Yeah, I can get you on a split, but I, I, didn't, I didn't have that. I don't know. I, I, I didn't have something. I just, I just, and, and I got to tell you, Getting three outs at the end of a game was very, very different than getting three outs in the sixth inning. Well, it, it makes sense in that when you're you're setting up a guy in an at bat in his first at bat, right. you're thinking I'm going to show him two of my three here or one of my three in this at bat, and he might right. see two different ones his next at bat. As a closer, you just got to throw strikes. You put a guy on well, base, it, you're, you're going to blow right. to save. And, and that, that that's what I tell you. Hitters are different in the ninth inning. Every, so so if people were asking me what the difference is between you know October and, and August, and I said, listen. The only way I can explain it is that every single at bat in October, the hitter is treating it like it's the bottom of the ninth and the tying runs on third. That's a different and, and and hitters that can handle that can handle it. Pitchers have to be able to handle that as well. You have to be perfect. If you can't accept perfect, and for me that's closing is one of those things. That's what makes Mariano Rivera. Not only not only did I suck at it, but Mariano Rivera got six hundred saved with one pitch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That that makes me even matter. Um but but uh no, I mean, it's, it's just a different mentality. I, I would tell you right now, it's the reason the Sox are struggling and will not get to the playoffs if they don't fix it. And the other teams, you cannot, cannot, cannot have a bullpen by committee. I know they love that, and that's a sabermetrics thing. But I'm telling you, as someone who's done all the jobs on the pitching staff, when I'm down in the bullpen, the one thing I want to know is that when the phone rings, I know when it rings for me. Because, you know, it, it, in the sixth and seventh inning, you have your middle guys. In the eighth and ninth, seventh, eighth innings, you have your, your you know, your specialists and your late inning guys and your close of the night. I know teams don't like that, that but that's just the way we're, we're built. And, again, they bring them up in the minor leagues that way. And, and then you get to the big leagues, and when you don't know who the phone's going to ring for when it rings in the eighth inning – I think that's a problem. It doesn't work. Dude, isn't that funny? We see this like every year. At some point, a team has a closer go down, and they go, we're going to go bullpen by committee. Like, it happens every year, and it never work. works. Never works. <laughs> it never works. And you see the reverse is true. You see teams start out saying, we're going to go by bullpen by committee. Right, right. 
And after 12 blown saves in April, they put somebody <laughs> in the closer. Yeah. Because you have to. One guy's got to know that's his job. Uh, but a couple more questions. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, just, just a couple more. We're going to switch topics with you. I, I know you're a big Lou Gehrig guy. Did you name your son Gehrig? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and, we, and you've got Lou Gehrig. Twitter handles. Your well. Twitter handle is Gehrig38. Uh, we just want to yeah, talk to you so. about the, the importance of him. And, and, I mean, you didn't see him play, but what was the impact or why was it that he was such a special player for you? Well, the, 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 the reference to Lou, first of all, is he's one of the greatest human beings that ever lived. But more importantly, uh, in 1992, Shonda and I met uh, a patient with ALS. And since 1992, that has been something we've been deeply committed to. Um, and, and we've grown up, our kids, our families have grown up with that, uh, people like that in their lives. Uh, and the cure for ALS is, is on the horizon, and, and it's something we've been involved with. So we, we named him Garrick because we wanted the name Garrick to be associated with life and not death. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's, a, it's been a powerful message that he himself has taken on his shoulders and, and, been, uh, and spread, and something we've been very proud to be associated with. Yeah, we're here in the Bay Area, so we lost Dwight Clark to that. So thanks for all the work yep. that you do. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, before we let you go, Kurt, I have to ask you. So you, for the Hall of Fame voting, you jumped from 45% to 51.2% last year. How do you feel about the voting process? I mean, we all think you should be in there. I don't. But, okay. I, I don't. I really don't. I, honest to God, I don't. I don't feel any way. It's something I have no control over. So uh, if it happens, awesome. If it doesn't, it, my, I'll still have my rings. I'll still have my trophies, and mm-hmm. I'll still have my memories. So getting a plaque in Cooperstown is not going to make me or break me as what I was as a player. We appreciate your time, man. It's been a lot of fun getting to talk to you and pick your brand. I mean, I, I watched so many of your starts over your uh, your career when I was a kid, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun to get to talk pitching with you, man. Yeah, we're thank big you. fans, and you need, you'll be in All Cooperstown. Right, thank you guys. Thanks, Kurt. All we'll right. talk to you later. All right, bye bye. Good stuff from Kurt, right? Yeah, great stuff from Kurt Schilling. I mean, he first of all, the the personality of a guy like that. I know he gets he gets a little flack for. Uh, being Political so outspoken, views, he's actually yeah. said, I think, publicly, I can be obnoxious sometimes. He knows what he feels. Yeah, speaks but- what he feels. You don't have to agree with him about his his uh, his views outside of the game of baseball. But the guy has played twenty say, or he played twenty seasons of of Major League Baseball. Yeah. He struck out three thousand guys. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to the game. You got to respect, and I actually like that he's vocal. You know, be, he's him, right? He's being you know him, and he, when you talked about the game, you could see why he was so good as a broadcaster as well because he knows every the ins and outs he's watching the modern day i mean he has great takes I, i'm thrilled i asked him about the journals because um, i'm so remember, Jill, like i'm saying to you i go you better I, ask you i think it's someone else the story like, just ask because we can always like just say okay the story, sorry yeah, someone yeah, else. Yeah. the story is that I, I i like so many times when i was a kid and i'm saying kid like 13 14 15 you had kurt Schilling, randy johnson out there facing bonds aurelia kent jt snow here in the bay area like that, those were the matchups I dreaded, right? I didn't want to see. I didn't want to see Brandon Webb of the D-backs. I didn't want yeah. to see. Uh, you had Mark Grace out there. You had Matt Williams, the former yeah. Giant, at third base. So I used to stress out about getting to see Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling. But when they pitched, they like dominated the game in a way that oh. Barry Bonds dominated the lineup. So Kurt Schilling. Those are the days, though. Really, I mean, those I mean, are the, the baseball early days. And I, I remember, I remember Schilling walking off the mound a couple of times, uh, and then going straight to the dugout and like sitting down and taking notes. I remember as a kid thinking, like, who's taking notes? in the dugout and now it makes all the more sense game plan it was his game plan but he also said it was like he didn't want to forget certain things that he remembered at a certain moment in the game he had to make note of i do that before i go to bed if i forget something i know i won't remember in the morning so you write it down i do that while dudes are answering (laughs) questions right here on the podcast so uh that was incredible stuff a lot of fun talking to kurt i'm sure i'm actually shocked he never would have sigh but we are looking through the list and it went randy johnson roger clemens um, well, so just real quick, Pedro, for, right? It yeah, was, well, a couple, a couple of the numbers. If you're talking he was about second, right? He, he, yeah, he had three number two finishes for yeah. the Cy Young. All three number two finishes, by the way, 
come at age 34 or later. Right. So he dominated late in his career. I mean, that's when he won all three of his World Series, too. Uh, but he had a, a Cy Young that he lost to Curt Schilling. He had a Cy Young that he lost to Johan Santana when he was a member of the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. And Santana was dominating the AL out of the Metrodome. But, uh, no, just phenomenal stuff. And, and a lot of the stuff he dealt with, the changing of the, the – uh, Quest Tech is what he was talking about, the yeah. K-Zone thing. I remember that when he, was great that he punched out the I, remember I actually remember bo- that yeah. once you said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, I, I wasn't trying to get into his fine, but yeah. uh, he did uh, He did break the Quest Tech machine. Great stuff from Chris But it was Schiller. great. I mean, I still believe he should be in. Regardless of what you think about him off you know, the field, he should be in well, right Cooper Sound for sure. Active player, um, CC Sabathia, has got 3,000 Ks. Yeah. Outside of CC, I believe Kurt Schilling's the only guy with 3,000 strikeouts not I looked at it. He's the only one who's not in Cooper Sound. Remember, there used to be like the, and I know this was maybe even like, pre-steroid era, there used to be markers that got you in. 3,000 hits mm-hmm. got you in. That got you in right away. 500 homers got you in. Uh, and he was never, and we know outs. that he was never juicing Kurt No, Kurt Schilling wasn't juicing any, any pitch through the uh, through that era, and we didn't get into the steroid era stuff. With and him. you would I mean, think just getting the Red Sox to where they're at, I mean, all that combined, the World Series champion, the MVP, right? You would think that I, he'd be a, a shoe in You would I, think, I but the, the, the voting is coming up, and, and we're hearing this now talking to a couple of these guys. Uh, Kurt Schilling not in maybe because of the way he speaks off the field, Roger Clemens not in because of the the ties to steroids. Mm-hmm. Both of them ended their interview with us and saying, "I got everything I needed from the game." Of I baseball. like how he said that too. He got my rings, I got my statue, I'm I got fine. my memories, and and the memory about uh, about nine eleven. I'd forgotten. I that, actually like a lot of the stuff because it did kind of refresh those memories. You know, thinking about all that. That was emotional. Like when oh, they, very I mean, emotional. of course, I mean, of course, it was emotional. But when and they, I didn't realize that he he got sick. He said for almost ten days. Inhaling after. stuff out right. out at, at Ground Zero, but uh, I remember even thinking when it went down that. Uh, there was no way the Yankees were going to lose the World Series that year because of of what had happened in the in the city of New York and the couple of walk off home runs off of Young Young Kim. I think Paul O'Neill hit one. Derek Jeter hit yes. one. They started calling him Mister November. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they go back to Arizona. Randy Johnson threw a huge game and and closed it out in Game Seven. Shilling, I believe, pitched Game Six. Makes so. you want to watch those games right now. Yeah, Miguel actually. Batista, I think, was their third starter. Yeah. They didn't really have anybody else, but. Yeah, it was really good stuff. Well, we'll continue to do this on the weekly pass. We're going to continue to have these exclusive interviews from these players that. Basically, all of them are like Hall of Famers. They're elite. They're elite. If yeah, they're not they, Hall of Famers, they should be Hall of yeah, Famers. Yeah, and they're top of the echelon. If they're not, they're not on our show. <laughs> as, <laughs> as simple as that. So we'll be back on the Weekly Pass. I'm Bonnie Jill Laughlin. I'm Adam Copeland. See ya.